and welcome to another episode of Book Salad, the podcast for readers of young adults, new adults, and for those who are young adults at heart. I'm Sam Connell. And I'm Kathleen Krause. This month we have read Genuine Fraud by E. Lockhart. So Genuine Fraud is the story of Jewel, who, when we meet her, which is at the end of the story actually, is on the run because she has assumed the identity of her missing friend Imogen. And as we go through the story, we see the way that Imogen and Jewel's friendship plays out, all of the steps Jewel takes to achieve everything she wants to in life, to have all the things she wants in life, and all of the moral compromises she makes in order to get where she wants to be. It's a twisty story that is told backwards. So after the first chapter, we go back and then we see what happened to take her to that point. There are a lot of plot twists in spite of this. It is a wild ride. So I just want to warn everyone that, as usual, we will be spoiling everything. So if you haven't read the book, or you're halfway through the book, or you don't know where you are in the book because it's backwards, <laughs> just put the book down and wait until you're finished to listen to the podcast. You have been trying to get me to read this book since I met you almost four <laughs> years ago. And I'm curious, when you book talk this book to people, what do you say to try to get them to sell them? First, I think you should ask how many people have picked up this book after I've book talked it to them. And it's, it's probably not a lot. I say that it's a thriller. There's a lot of exciting developments. Even though it is told backwards, there are a lot of things that happen that you don't see coming. If you like morally compromised heroines, which I do, and it turns out a lot of people don't, <laughs> then it's the book for you. So, Sam. Yes. The moment I have been waiting for since you agreed to read the book. What did you think? You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it right back at you. What do you think I thought? Or think? What do you think <laughs> I think? <laughs> I think that question is more confusing than the book. I, I'm going to say that you had a similar reaction to when we read Sadie mm. and you respect the book. You think it was effective and well told and interesting. You also think all of the people in it are horrible and everything that happens is horrifying <laughs> and you've got a lower opinion of me as a result. <laughs> um... Yeah, I'm not going to give you all of those things. All right. I, I, I acknowledge that after reading Sadie, I was mad at you. And I, I think I was actually on the floor, like, trying to catch my breath. But I think with Sadie, I was so deeply moved. I enjoyed Genuine Fraud. I read it through very, very quickly. It's extremely entertaining. But is it too entertaining? Is it entertaining for the right reasons? You and I both like the unlikable main character, right? Like, that doesn't bother me. And I don't, I'm okay with someone who is morally bankrupt. But uh, there was a little too made for Netflix here for me. I appreciate the device, I appreciate how well thought out it was. But it was a little drama induced plot propelling for me 
Ooh, I can't believe I said that to you. You like this book, so you have to defend it a little bit to me. Uh, I do like this book, and I, I thought you were going to accuse me of... <laughs> Uh, of saying that Jewel is my personal hero or something. When you have these characters who do these terrible things that you would never do in your real life, I think there is something kind of exciting and freeing about that. There's some, I wouldn't say wish fulfillment, like I would be going out murdering people and then stealing their identities. <laughs> Watching that play out is very satisfying in ways that this is not a therapy session, so we can't we can't unpack all that. I mean, it's troubling, I guess, but true. What I like about this story is that you do have this character who is an exaggerated version of someone who's who's maybe always in control, who sees herself as the spy, the superhero, this character with a tremendous amount of these skill sets, these talents, this control in every situation she's in. But I also do like just the questions it brings up about identity and what you have to do, do you have to be morally compromised to sometimes live the life that you believe you should be living or want to live? So I think all of those questions of the steps Jewel takes to make her, her dreams come true, even though they're not good things, they're obviously immoral. I do like that it raises those questions for me. I agree. I don't, I don't, I'm not to say that this book is oversimplified. It's actually really well thought out. The characters are interesting. The format is fascinating. And I would give more points for format if I didn't feel that I had already experienced this with the talented Mr. Ripley, which the author acknowledges that she's inspired by. But inspiration and having a muse is very different than feeling that you've already been through a very similar storyline. I was very suspicious of the format, but I enjoyed the format. I thought it was really cool. And when I got to the first chapter, I was like, how is this going to move backwards? Because I want it to move forward from this moment. And I was like, I don't want to go back. I want to find out what happens next. But every chapter is, is just so well written. But that brings us right back to somewhat episodic vibe. I'm a little tormented by this book because I... I almost want to like it more than I do because as much as I find the premise brilliant, it's pulled off really well. Um, I have had, I have read similar books so that that doesn't shine as bright as I'd like it to, but I, I felt emotionally I, I could let it go because it, it was so far fetched in how quickly a young woman could go from being mistaken to someone to premeditated murder. I found the murder scenes to be really brutal and graphic and also somewhat harsh and caught me off guard. So, for example, I'm rooting for her. I'm like, maybe she is a spy. Maybe she maybe she grew up in spy school. Maybe this is like a part fantasy. And there must be some really interesting backstory to her. And I wonder who this friend is. And all of a sudden you find out that scene where she kills Brooke, I lost respect for Jewel. It was hard for me to stay engaged. I mean, she really just clocks this poor girl at the top of a ravine with a statue of a cat I didn't see it coming it was so brutal it was it was I mean I think this book feels like blunt force trauma to me I I, I think that is a really good point I like okay I was going to say I like the brutality and I feel <laughs> that I really need to preface this 
I like it because of how unexpected and how horrifying it is. I absolutely agree that Jewel wins you over and totally has you rooting for her at the beginning and you're thinking that whatever happened probably isn't that bad. She even kind of views her life cinematically so she feels very removed I think from something so real and so in the moment as as the brutal murder. It's a lot more visceral than you expect. I like that that doesn't shy away because then you have this turning point in the text where you realize everything that you were feeling was a manipulation and was based on imperfect information. And I think that's what's really cool about that backwards story. And you can meet her after she's committed a murder and have an impression of her that is not informed by that and then it completely changes even though the event that you're thinking about happened already but you just didn't know. So I like that recontextualizing that happens again and again. That is really cool. It is, it's like a, a Russian doll set where you, you just keep going deeper and deeper. And I guess for me, I was hoping that we'd find something redeeming about her. <laughs> and I, I didn't get there. I think that's a very valid point you make. It is intentionally cinematic because there is a survival theme. She does butt up against the unfairness of class and wealth and power. I love that scene in, wasn't it when they were in Martha's Vineyard when she's with Imogen's boyfriend and she's explaining how she's always reinventing herself because it's the rule. Oh no, it's in London or something. She, she's explaining the rule of the flat and he says something along the lines of, you know, that's that's insane. There's no such thing as a rule. And she said, no, every time you go somewhere you have to understand the rules and you have to understand what they are and you have to adjust yourself to fit in and he said I've never heard of such a thing I just and she flips it on him to the point that he agrees that it is because of his privilege as a man and his wealth that he never feels that way I think for someone like Jules who's coming from a lower socioeconomic class she always feels that way stepping into a private school event stepping into a situation where there are wealthy kids who are vacationing and traveling or even university students I do think that is fascinating and then she steps way outside of that kind of identity and then she starts to need to see herself as a superhero as even a villain she's she just sees that as a source of strength. And I did like that the book threaded that throughout. I think that idea of being real and being fake, I mean, obviously the title is getting you to think about that right away, and it's this oxymoron, and you know, what could a genuine fraud be? But I think it is really interesting that someone can be portraying themselves, you know, in a quote-unquote real way or in a fake way, but there's so much that goes into that below the surface. So some people don't have the luxury of being quote-unquote authentic, being genuine. And sometimes whatever is fake about you might be revealing more truth than even that surface level that you're showing. There's a lot going on with Jewel, but also I don't know what's going on with Jewel because she's such a liar. And the origin stories and all of that, I mean, you're talking about from the beginning, we're thinking maybe this really improbable origin story is true or is rooted in some truth and then you get stories throughout and at the end I think maybe that's the true story that she's telling I think it's in Puerto Rico she's she's revealing these stories or, or maybe it's even earlier than that but 
you never really know because she's thinking so much about constructing identity and the identity she wants to put forth in the world and what people will respond to more than anything. So she takes those pieces of the kids that uh, Imogen went to school with and she she just threads those into her own life and just uses those stories as if they were her own. Or even when she's taking over Emmy's life later, she just becomes the stories that she clearly never lived. I really like that approach because you can argue that we all have to act at some point and we all have to be outside of ourselves. The way you behave when you're at work or at school is going to be different than the way you behave when you're all by yourself in your living room, right? And so she really takes that to the furthest degree. I Even so, what's really remarkable is that I wouldn't think of her as an unreliable narrator. I feel that she's always being true to her thoughts. She's always in the moments with her thoughts. There are times when she talks herself out of feeling bad for something, and you're with her. She's very straightforward with herself as she moves through these emotions, and yet she's an unreliable person in this life that she lives in. There's this one really great quote, which she says something along the lines of, oh, this boy is lying to me half the time, but I'm lying to him all the time. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, she's very consistent. I think one of the ways that the book brings you in is that she's very consistent in her voice that you're being privy to. So even though all of these characters are being told different things and the things that unfold are kind of unclear whether they're true or if they're going to get recontextualized later, she does have a very steady voice that makes you feel that you do understand at least on some level, what's going on with her. And as much as we're moving with the format, the way the author is bringing you backward, sort of episode by episode in her life to understand her, I really like that the book also showed you her progression step by step into this extreme. As she went from just, you know, trying to live a better life for herself to the first time she lies, the first time she takes on someone else's persona, which is pretty innocently because her roommate felt unwell, and so she jumped in to help her not lose her job, and that's that's how the whole train rolls forward. I like how there's these happy accidents that propel her movement to villainy forward, and then there's very measured the way she cleans up a murder scene the way she took that Stanford sweatshirt and aged it sprayed bleach on it (laughs) ran it through the wash and and I'm and I I I remember thinking as I read this she sat there through wash cycle after wash cycle determined to take on this other persona Imogen's mom asked her to lie asked her to live this fake life asked her to check up on her you know and so it's not entirely self-driven. Even this idea of learning other accents came from some some guy that worked at a gym. It's really neat. I, I did enjoy how the book moved backwards, but you got to see her progression, and that was cool. I think the thing that is so striking to me is it, it will tell you, too, how many weeks it's jumping backwards and the different locations at the start of every chapter. But as you get further and further back, you realize she has not been living this life very long. I mean, it feels so inhabited and, and like she is a spy or something, right? Like she's gone to school, like she's had all of this training and then you go back and 
I mean, how long ago was it even that she was just serving at the school function and met Amy's mom in a completely random bathroom? You know, it's, it's just happenstance. She kind of assumes this mistaken identity. Imogen's mother is the one who has, she kind of tragically orchestrates it in a way, her, her daughter's murder because she is bringing Jewel into her life. Mm-hmm. And she's mistaking her for someone else. And this leaves all of those tiny little mistakes. Jewel is the kind of person who's able to slip right into those and say, okay, I'm going to take that mistake and run with it and become that in no time at all. I mean, she's like the those people who, you know, trade like a paperclip and then they buy a house. Like, it's just all those little... <laughs> It's all those little steps, and then all of a sudden it's become, like, this whole thing where she's impersonating the girl that she murdered. And just the fact that they just had to look a little bit alike, and that was enough. Yeah, and, well, not even that. Like, the mom mistook her for a childhood friend of Imogen's. I like that you bring up the mom because there's that scene, and you don't realize it, where you don't know what's happened to Imogen, but you do know that Imogen's dead, and the mom comes to visit. And Jules meets with the mom, and that's where the mom informs her that uh, Imogen left Jules all of her money, something north of $8 million. The mom is so happy about that news, and of course she's donated to, you know, other uh, philanthropic organizations. And and then, you know, within a few pages, like 100 pages, not even 100 pages, you read the scene where Jules kills Imogen. Even that's a progression, right? I feel like Scott hanging himself was Jules first experience with death of someone she knew and then it progressed to death of someone in an act of passion and then it progressed to a very carefully premeditated hit on Brooke I think that's a good point I mean we see Brooke's murder first and it's so shocking but I mean there were all of those steps that had to happen for I don't I don't think Jewel was immediately considering that from the beginning she wasn't always a murderer she found herself capable of a lot yeah each step of the way she's traumatized and then she dusts off her boots and she's like well okay I got this I'm gonna survive this and her tolerance for violence and for deception just keeps growing weirdly after everything I've said I think you would be surprised to know that towards the end I'm still rooting for her I don't even know why (laughs) Right, the um, Noah, the inspector, is like chasing her, which is like chapter one slash eighteen, and then it's at the very end of the book. And I, I, I still want her to get away. In the, in the strangest twist, when you think she's cornered, it turns out that they think that she's Imogen impersonating Jules. Yeah, you seem to like traumatic open endings where there's a lot of murder happening. <laughs> is this a cry for help? It, I had to redeem myself because you insulted me by suggesting that I liked predictable happy endings and I was gone soft and whatever. And so now, I mean, this Happens. was really me showing you my true colors. No, I, oh I do like, I think you're right. Like, it's, you can really play with people's loyalties and, and you can have a character like Jewel who... I mean, I think we would both agree has done things that are not forgivable, but at the same time, I'm absolutely like, she's got to get away. I mean, we know her better. So I think in that sense, like that allegiance is there. It's established, right? We're like, well, I don't, I don't want her to get captured by this random character who's only been on the periphery. I somehow am still on her side on some level. And 
I don't know. I mean, she's the kind of character who always lands on her feet. So I guess I'm thinking she can reinvent herself again. But I think every time she reinvents herself, she's losing some sense of maybe her humanity or maybe her sense. She, she knows she's capable of anything at this point. And she knows that at any moment a situation might require something of her that she has to be willing to give. It actually surprises me the way she reacts to a lot of these situations because right after she killed Emmy, she was so traumatized and she was like vomiting and ill and she was losing sense of time and she was, I just can't imagine in one short year you can go from that to comfortably lying to the authorities and evading capture and and she kills Brooke without passion. I mean, she really was like, she knows too much. She asks too many questions. <laughs> yeah. Which, it's one thing for survival or passion, but she, she ends up in cold-blooded murder. She almost validates her actions by saying how caught up she was with Emmy and how much she loved Emmy and she felt a home in Emmy. It was the worst kind of obsession. It was everything she wanted to be and it was who she wanted to be with. Emmy's also, she's painted as kind of a serial user, right? She's not great with her relationships, with her boyfriends or her friends, which is why Brooke is so easily duped into thinking that Emmy's in the same situation and they should go and try to rein Emmy in for both of them. There's this one scene where she talks about shedding the last of Emmy, and in that moment of shattering through the chrysalis, she becomes so cold-blooded where she really just cares about Emmy's access and resources money and clothes and shopping and being welcome in the most uh, sophisticated places and she's just let go of the last of her humanity as unhealthy as that relationship was it actually grounded her for me a little bit I, I think that's definitely true because everything you see afterwards is really her holding on to whatever that life is and, and being a little she's she's cold I do think it's interesting because you see that so much with male characters and that's sort of a male, I wouldn't say anti-hero because hopefully you're not rooting for them, but you know, whether they're some kind of criminal, but someone who is the center of the story, you can kind of see the appeal of that. And I think, I mean, this is the thing that, that she even says in, in some of her, I think maybe toward the beginning of it, but she doesn't have to be that kind of the girlfriend or the arm candy or anything. She's really inventing herself as sort of the male anti-hero kind of that role. I mean, I think ultimately there's something satisfying in that because you don't see it very often, but she's a terrible person. And I don't know that I'd want to read her story after, like what comes after she escapes it because I, what's left. <laughs> her 12-month progression is horrific. What she does <laughs> in the next 10 years, could I can only... I shudder to think. But there is a little bit of a flaw in your theory. All right. That she's so, like, cold-blooded and unthinking, and she's, like, traditional male character that does these things and leaves all this trauma in his wake unfeelingly. You have to explain Paolo to me, because she does the most ridiculous things because she cares for him. <laughs> I mean, talk about a damsel that falls for a guy. She, I, that movie theater scene where she's pretending to not know what happened to Imogen and is out with Imogen's boyfriend to go see a play. And she sees Paolo from across the theater and he 
he calls her Imogen and wants to have, what was it, coffee or tea with her. And I was like, <laughs> I think this is... She, she does these absurd, self-sabotaging, vulnerable things for a boy. I, I think... I think that's a good point that there is a narrative that she tells herself that she tries to create a persona she t- she crafts for herself, but she does fall short. I think every time that I think that happens, she tries to kind of steal herself against that and say never again. But I don't feel that she's, you know, like a sociopath or something because I do think that there is too much that if she were able to, if she allowed herself to feel, she could easily kind of fall into another kind of path or a different life but she makes the decisions where that's not going to happen ultimately well she entraps herself along the way she has less and less options along the way yeah with each of those wild plot twists that you love Um, i do love the plot twist so maybe that's why i like that i did like the plot i really enjoyed reading the book but do you think maybe i would have liked it better if you didn't hype it so much for me I, you've told me this is my favorite book, which is, it's not, but I was reading it and I was like, I have such good taste, but, because <laughs> I had forgotten a lot of it. I had read it maybe three years ago and yeah, like I, I was still really feeling it. And I, I think just on like a technical level, I was just like the stuff she's doing here. I just, I, I felt like yeah. she was so in control of her writing, uh, E. Lockhart, that I was just like, this is, this is good. It's like a weird, actually E. Lockhart's background is in Victorian literature the thing I learned about her and Emmy's really? passion is for Victorian literature which I thought was like kind of a nice fun quirky thing and my favorite book is Jane Eyre so um I really th- yes why <laughs> favorite book is Jane Eyre yeah what is your favorite book I don't know it's probably to kill a mockingbird okay it's the book I read that I was like I love books <laughs> yeah I know. I think it's always like a book that you read when you were yes, a kid. Yes, I was like much younger. And, and I was like, I did not know books could be this amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Jane Eyre, interesting. Okay, so I do have a quote to share. This quote is a little bit why I really enjoyed reading this book. Um, because Jewel is this bigger-than-life, badass character. Um, I, I could do without some of the violence. <laughs> but in this scene... She has just committed the cold-blooded murder of Brooke, which was premeditated. She bludgeoned her to death and threw her body over a cliff. Am I exaggerating? I don't think so. No. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's the lovely Jewel. She kind of panics and cleans up the murder scene, and then she ends up at a bus station. As Jewel settled down to wait... The adrenaline high of the past few hours seeped away. She bought three packs of peanut M&Ms from a vending machine and sat on top of her bags. Suddenly, she was exhausted and afraid. There were only a couple of other people in the room, all of them using the station for a night's shelter. Jules sucked on the M&Ms to make them last. She tried to read, but she couldn't concentrate. After 25 minutes, a drunk man sleeping on a bench woke up and began to sing loudly. Jewel knew she had gone way effing astray. She had killed a stupid loudmouth girl with brutal premeditation. There would never be a savior who could rescue her from whatever had made her do it. She had never had a savior. That was it. No going back. She was alone in a bone-cold bus station 
on December 23rd. Listening to a drunk guy and scraping the last of someone's blood from underneath her nails with the corner of her bus ticket. Other people, good people, were baking gingerbread cookies, eating peppermints, and tying bows on holiday gifts. They were quarreling and decorating and cleaning up after big meals, tipsy from mulled wine, watching uplifting old movies. Jewel was here. She deserved the chill, the loneliness, the drunks and the trash, a thousand worse punishments and tortures. The clock went around the dial. It hit midnight and became officially Christmas Eve. Jewel bought a hot chocolate from a machine. She drank it and felt warmer. She talked herself up from despair. After all, she was brave, smart, and strong. She had done the deed with credible efficiency, with style even. She had committed murder with an effing kitty cat statue in a beautiful state park over a massive and scenic ravine. There had not been a single witness. She had left no blood anywhere. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> I mean, cleaning somebody else's blood with the edge. Man. It's the little details. I mean, it's a short book, but, like, every detail is oh. so perfect. <laughs> I was like, Jewel. Yeah, it is. It does. It it, it 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 pushes you a little bit. And you're just like, wow. There's a real distinct style here, which is not a lot of fluff or description. I mean, you know me, I love magical realism and I'm like, oh my gosh, stars, we're underwater and there's an elephant swimming, flying, yay. <laughs> and there's none of that here. Not there's just the, the sentences cut through the way the characters cut through. Is that kind of your thing? I would say no, but I do love film noir and I feel like this is so okay. much in that, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't even know You've, you've caused me to question everything. I have no idea why I like it. Other than that, I think it's the unlikable. It is the unlikable protagonist. I, I like that you said that it was cinematic. I totally see that. And I made that joke about Netflix, but it's true. Like, there is, I tend to not like cinematic books. Prefer, <laughs> like, the meaty lit literature that you're, like, pulling off the bone as opposed to something that I'm like, ah, I can see this, like, framed out on a screen. Just based on what we've read together over the years, I can see that that's not really your thing either. But I think it was the mixture of how dark she got <laughs> and and the, and the little, the insights and tiny steps towards darkness. I think that's, maybe that could be your nickname, Tiny Steps to Darkness. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. I like, and I think that has to be a big part of it. Because, I mean, if you were going to ask me to read Hemingway or something, I would say no. So I'm not necessarily oh. the kind of person who likes those short bare sentences but I like to imagine this book was originally 500 pages long and she just refined it I don't know that she did but I could wouldn't see that? that like there really yeah. isn't um there isn't that extra paragraph or two um I'm I'm so glad I read it if nothing else so that I could get you off my back I know now you're going to make me read just I don't even know uh, is it time for more existentialism uh, poetry no. books and verse very worried for her our next right. episodes. Any read-alikes for us? Well, I first wanted to point out, and this is, I'm going to be calling myself out a little bit on this. I, I wanted to point out that I actually found this very similar to some of our previous podcast reads. I recommended this book, I believe, as a read-alike to Sadie. And I think 
we both already brought up Sadie. I, I think this is very similar. I mean, I think Sadie's a more sympathetic character than Jewel, but mm-hmm. a lot of that journey and a lot of kind of the vibe they give off and how they just always have to be moving forward and just, you know, making their way in this, this cold, harsh world, um, it, it feels very similar to me thematically uh, and with the main character. I also, though, I also thought Mun Mun was sort of similar in that it's very Dickensian. And really? so is this book. Yeah. So, I mean, it's okay. about a character who's doing what it takes, basically, to succeed in the world. Mm. And so, in that sense, I felt that there was there were some similarities there. And so, then, this made me realize that those were both my recommendations. <laughs> and there is perhaps something going on with me to, to make me choose all of these books. I do feel that we had to read a murderous female protagonist for you because the last two books we read had shiny, happy endings, and I was worried for you. Yeah, I don't want you to think, not even for a second, that that's what I'm about. (laughs) I can enjoy it. Yeah. Or was was I just pretending? No, No, we were worried you were getting soft on us. So I also think some great read-alikes are any of the inspirations for the book. So you talked about Talented Mr. Ripley, which obviously is very similar in a lot of ways. It's by Patricia Highsmith. It's about Tom Ripley, who starts out as a young striver in uh, Manhattan in the 1950s. And then he becomes friends with Dickie Greenleaf, which becomes obsessive and... uh, Ripley is sent to Italy to bring back his friend, and stuff happens. Is that a fair description? You know what? You're, you're doing well skirting around the uh, spoilers. <laughs> Some stuff happens. And then also, she, she talks a lot about Victorian literature, so uh, Great Expectations, really any Dickens, I think. You have a lot of these stories where there's this character who is making his way in the world, learning to be a gentleman, being successful. There's a lot of guilt and revenge and crime and crazy characters like Miss Havisham. So so any any of those, or, or Jane Eyre, I'll just throw that one in. They have that line about, I think it's like edgy orphans who are, they do what they have to. I love that. <laughs> uh, and then my last one was um, All the Missing Girls by Megan Miranda, which is similar to this, a thriller told backwards. This is an adult book. It's about the story of two missing women. The disappearances happen 10 years apart, but the story is told from day 15 to day one. So it's that same backwards thriller format. Um, So it's about this woman whose best friend disappeared 10 years ago. She goes back to her hometown. All of her, her friends and her family who were there at the time of the original disappearance, they're still there. One of them is dating a new woman who ends up disappearing as well. Similar thriller format what's gonna happen it's going backwards sort of thing so what are we reading next i'm kind of excited about this one although we are getting into kind of a pattern or rut (laughs) it's it's the invisible life of addie larue which you know because it's sitting right here on my desk it starts with a woman uh, a young woman in france in 1714 and she's desperate to get rid of what she considers to be a simple life in a tiny, tiny village. And she ends up making a deal with this sort of dark entity that comes to her at dusk and 
it turns out that she wants to sort of live forever and she's willing to bargain to live forever and experience life um, and that when she no longer wants to live she will give her soul over and so begins this extraordinary tale of survival and she finds out unfortunately that she bargained away the ability for anyone to remember her so she moves through almost the seams of other people's lives and she she lives for a really long time but and she has to figure out how to survive she can't hold a job she can't have a relationship no one remembers her after the, an interaction when this was explained to me i was like there's no way this device holds up but we've been here before and it not only does it hold up it was a breathless wonderful story uh that's what we're reading next i hope you guys come back and read with us but i feel like i don't know what's going on here kathleen we're reading we, we have to break out of this don't you think do you mean we shouldn't read more books about white women cycling through identities <laughs> <laughs> every single page? Yeah, I... Yeah. <laughs> okay, is this is this the illness or the medicine? What is this for us? Do we need this right now? Is this... Are we wallowing in a pandemic that we're feeding ourselves what we need to do? Or is this a cry for help? I think a little bit of both. And <laughs> okay, I think we just have to be comfortable with that. So next time we will maybe dig deeper into any genre, <laughs> anything else, anything else. Yeah, I think I think everybody Stay deserves that from us. <laughs> Stay tuned for anything else. <laughs> okay, I, that's it for this episode. Anything else you wanted to share? I think we're I. I think that we've covered enough about me tonight. Um, anyway, that was a lot of fun. So come back soon. That was fun. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Bye.